Welcome, my friends, to The Catholic Reason, a radio show produced by St. Michael Catholic Radio, where we explain the whys behind Catholic beliefs concerning issues of faith, morality, and culture. My name is Carlo Brusard, and I'm a staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and a member of the Chancery Evangelization team at the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma. Every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m., I come to you with a Catholic claim, and we think through the reasons behind such a claim, whether we're dealing with faith, morals, or culture. You can find the podcast version of the show by searching The Catholic Reason in any podcast search engine that you use, or go to carlobrusor.com, my website, and click The Catholic Reason under the audio tab. You can also access the podcast version by subscribing to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast. The show's hosted there as well. And also, if you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the air in future shows, you can do so by emailing me at carlo at stmichaelradio.com. Saint is S-T, michaelradio.com. In today's show, we're going to look at the question of whether the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal security, popularly referred to as the once-saved-always-saved doctrine. The Catholic claim is that the Bible does not teach the doctrine of eternal security. Now, there are different ways that we could approach this topic. One way would be to give positive evidence that the Bible teaches it's possible to lose the gift of salvation initially given to us. We're going to save that approach for another episode or show. Another way to approach this is to look at the biblical passages that Protestants use to justify the doctrine of eternal security and show why those passages fail to prove the once-saved-always-saved doctrine. And so it's this latter approach that we might call a negative approach that we're going to take up in this episode. Now, there are many biblical passages that our Protestant brothers and sisters appeal to to justify this doctrine of eternal security, and we can't look at them all here. So I've selected three popular ones. First, 1 John 5, verse 13. We're going to take a look at that one. Secondly, John chapter 5, verse 24 is a common text that's appealed to. And finally, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. And of course, we'll look at more in future episodes. So let's start with the argument from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Contrary to Catholic belief, as you all know, some Protestants teach that once we believe in Jesus, we can be absolutely sure we're going to heaven. That's the eternal security doctrine, or as I mentioned, popularly known as once saved, always saved. And a passage that they normally quote in support of that belief, or as a proof text, is 1 John 5.13, where John writes, I write this, that you may know that you have eternal life. And what he's referring to in writing is that Jesus is the Son of God and that we need to believe in him, etc. The late Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie, they make this argument in their book, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, Agreements and Differences. And so the question is, well, does this text teach what some Protestants think it teaches, namely the doctrine of eternal security? Well, I'm going to answer no, it doesn't. 
And so how would we justify that claim? Well, consider this first of all. There is an ambiguity as to the meaning of the term knowledge. That is to say, there is ambiguity as to precisely which sense John intends with the term knowledge. Because think about it, the term knowledge can be used for different kinds of intellectual certainty. Sometimes it's used to convey absolute certitude. So for example, we can say, I know that one plus one equals two. And we are absolutely certain that is the case. So notice that knowledge, we're using the term know, the verb to know, in the sense of having absolute certitude. But knowledge can also be used in a way that doesn't imply absolute certitude. So for example, I may say that I know I'm going to earn an A on my philosophy exam because I've studied hard and I'm familiar, familiar with the material. Or, or in my own personal life currently, you know, in a few months, I'm going to be defending my dissertation for my PhD in philosophy. And I might say, I know I'm going to pass, <laughs> but that doesn't mean I have infallible knowledge, knowledge without the possibility of error and having absolute certitude that I'm going to pass because guess what? I could very well goof up and not pass, right? And so rather, the type of knowledge I'm talking about when I say I know I'm going to pass is I have a reasonable expectation, or you might say a confident expectation that I'll pass the defense or the exam. So since the term knowledge can take on the form of either absolute certitude or reasonable expectation, it's wrong to conclude that we can have absolute assurance that we're going to heaven just because John says that his readers can know they have eternal life. So the ambiguity of the term knowledge and the possibility of it referring to different senses of certitude is the first way in which we can begin to respond to the Protestant claim that 1 John 5.13 is revealing to us the doctrine of eternal security. Now, Here's a second answer. There is evidence that John is not using the term knowledge in the sense of having an absolute certitude. Because we have to ask the question, well, okay, so maybe there's ambiguity with the use of the term knowledge, but how did John intend for us to understand to know that we may know we have eternal life in this case? Some Protestants will argue that it's a knowledge that entails absolute certitude because it's revealed that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, the famous verse, right? So we have Revelation telling us that if we believe, we're going to have eternal life, and that gives us absolute certainty given the source that it's coming from, namely divine revelation. Since John's words in 1 John 5.13 are directed at those who, quote, believe in the name of the Son of God, close quote, so the argument goes, it follows that their knowledge that they will attain eternal life at the end of their lives entails absolute certitude. So how do we respond to that? Well, the problem here is that John also teaches his readers that they must persevere in belief until the end of their lives in order to obtain or in order to attain eternal life. 
And we see this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. Check it out. John writes, quote, whoever keeps his word, in him truly love for God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Then, in verse 24 of that same chapter, 1 John chapter 2, John writes the following, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. John's readers have heard from the beginning that Jesus is the Christ, and they need to confess him as such. And that's verse 22 of 1 John chapter 2 there. Okay? Yeah, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. The talk of this gospel message abiding in them refers to belief in that gospel message. It also refers to loving our neighbor, as John articulates in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. So we got to confess Christ. That's this gospel message, right? And confessing Christ refers to belief in the gospel message and loving our neighbor. The implication, I would suggest, is that continued belief in the gospel message and love of neighbor is necessary to abide in the Son and in the Father. And since to abide in the Son and in the Father is to have eternal life, it follows that continued belief in the gospel message, which works through love, referring to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, is necessary to attain eternal life. So, again, it's continued belief in the gospel message. That's the theme within John's letter, right? Because we're focusing on 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, but the wider context of John's letter is about abiding in the Son, abiding in belief, and thereby abiding in the Son and in the Father. And it is only by abiding in the Son and in the Father that we can attain eternal life. Now, this motif of perseverance in faith and love unto the end, it has its roots in the teaching of Jesus. In other words, John's just drawing from what Jesus has revealed to us concerning the necessity to remain in our belief in Christ, to abide in that faith and profession in Jesus Christ. Consider, for example, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 where Jesus says, he who perseveres unto the end will be saved. Now, we know this perseverance entails continued belief and love in Jesus, and that is referring to eternal salvation because just a few verses later, Jesus teaches that our being acknowledged before the Father, in other words, being numbered among the elect and thus having eternal life, is dependent on whether we acknowledge him before men. He who perseveres unto the end will be saved. And I was talking about how we know this perseverance entails continued belief and love in Jesus, and that he's referring to he's referring to eternal salvation because just a few verses later, Jesus teaches that our being acknowledged before the Father, that is to say, being numbered among the elect and thus having eternal life, according to Revelation chapter three, verse five, that's dependent on whether we acknowledge him before men. So listen to what our Lord says in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33. So this is just a few verses later after when he says we have to persevere into the end to be saved. He says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before man, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So he's talking about eternal salvation. When he says, he who perseveres unto the end shall be saved there in verse 22, Matthew 10, 22, 32 through 33 tells us he has eternal salvation in mind. All right, now, now that we know John believes his Christian readers must persevere in faith to attain eternal life at the end of their lives, the question becomes, how could John's readers possibly know with absolute certitude that they would persevere in faith until the end of their lives? So we've already established from John and Jesus that there is a necessity to persevere in belief and faith in Christ until the end of our lives in order to attain eternal, the eternal reward of heaven after we die. But how could John's, how could John's readers possibly know with absolute certitude that they would persevere in that faith until the end of their lives? Because John's telling them, hey, you believe, you have eternal life. But then the question becomes, how would they know that they would persevere in that belief? Well, consider this. They couldn't know by way of philosophical demonstration, since knowing which person's God has eternally decreed to give the grace of final perseverance to is beyond the reach of reason on its own, right? So we can't know that by reason alone. They couldn't know by way of public revelation because no inspired writing at the time John writes this letter names any of the Christians to whom John is writing as numbered among the elect. Nor does the Bible ever say believers in general will all persevere. To suggest otherwise would make passages that warn Christians about falling away from Christ unintelligible. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, we read, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That would include believers, right? So, the Bible never says believers in general will persevere. So, they wouldn't know by way of reason alone. They wouldn't know by way of public revelation, especially since nothing in Scripture is telling us that believers in general will all persevere. And the only other possible way that John's readers could have had absolute certitude concerning their final perseverance is by way of private revelation, which would involve Jesus appearing to them and telling them that they would persevere. But there's no evidence that John's readers did have such experiences, nor is there any evidence that John knew about such experiences. So here's the reasoning. Since these are the only ways that John's audience could possibly have absolute certitude that they would finally persevere in faith and thereby receive the eternal reward of heaven, it's reasonable to conclude that the knowledge John speaks of in 1 John 5.13 is not the kind of knowledge that involves absolute certitude. Rather, he's speaking of a knowledge that entails a confident expectation. Now, a Protestant might object here that we haven't exhausted all the options for private revelation. Because, recall, I just said that one way that they could possibly know that they're going to be eternally secure is by way of private revelation. And somebody might say, well, you haven't exhausted all the options because it's possible. Maybe John didn't think that Jesus appeared to his readers in a vision, but he would have known that they received the inner testimony of the Spirit that they are the children of God. Because Paul writes in Romans 8.16, it's the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so that would seem to reveal that John would know and his readers would know, given the inner testimony of the Spirit, that they are children of God, that they were secure in that status as a child of God. 
So how might we respond to this counter-argument here? Well, the problem here is that to be a child of God is distinct from receiving after death the inheritance of eternal life that belongs to his children. So it's one thing to be a child of God. It's another thing to receive the inheritance of being a child, for being a child of God. One can be a child of God and still forfeit his inheritance, which is eternal life. As such, the interior witness of the Spirit that Christians are children of God doesn't entail absolute certitude that all will persevere in faith to receive and enjoy their inheritance of eternal life at the end of their lives. So the appeal to Romans 8.16 and the inner testimony of the Spirit that we are children of God does not prove or support the doctrine of eternal security. Or to state it in more in a specified way, Romans 8.16 doesn't provide an avenue or a way in, by which John's readers would be able to know that they will persevere in the faith that gives them eternal life, which they currently have as John is writing to them, right? Now, in summary, John is consistent with the entirety of Scripture, which says we as Christians have to persevere in faith to receive the reward of eternal life at the end of our lives. We showed, we just showed that none of the ways one can arrive at absolute certitude concerning perseverance and faith applies to John's audience. And so, therefore, the knowledge that John says his audience can have concerning the possession of eternal life is not the kind of knowledge that involves absolute certitude. As such, our Protestant friend can't appeal to 1 John 5.13 as biblical support of the idea that Christians can know with absolute certitude that they're going to attain heaven at the end of their lives once they become believers. St. Paul would have fit right in with John's readers, since Paul didn't have such certain knowledge of his final salvation. Consider, consider what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says this, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, the Greek word for acquitted is dedikaiome, which means to justify or to declare righteous. And so, notice, Paul's not even willing to definitively conclude that he is finally completely justified and declared righteous. So, Paul doesn't seem to have an absolute certitude that he will remain in having faith in Christ and persevere into the end and thus be saved. And he would fit in right with John's readers, who also don't have a way in virtue of which they can have that absolute certainty that they will persevere in the belief in the name of the Son of God. Now, here's one final thing to note as we wrap up our analysis of this argument from 1 John 5.13. This doesn't mean, everything we've said here doesn't mean that we can't have any knowledge about attaining eternal life at the end of our lives. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches, by virtue of the theological virtue of hope, we can have a, quote, confident expectation of divine blessing and the beatific vision of God. That's found in paragraph 2090 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And so notice it's a confident expectation. There's a confident assurance as opposed to an absolute 
assurance. Those are two essentially different kinds of certain knowledge. And so it's important that we distinguish the two for the sake of having knowing the truth of God's Word. But having the confident expectation, that's certainly a knowledge that we can rejoice in. So it's not like we have to go around always having this spiritual paralysis and constant fear, oh, I'm going to lose my salvation, oh my gosh, and we, come, we, we become paranoid with it. That is not what we're saying here. We're simply saying that John's not saying we have absolute certainty, and so thereby uh, undermining the doctrine of eternal security, at least within this passage. This passage doesn't support that doctrine. And then saying what John is talking about concerning knowledge that we have eternal life is a confident expectation in hoping that God will preserve us in the faith that he's given to us initially to be united to him, to have to be in Jesus and in the Father. And on condition that we remain in that state and we die in the Son and in the Father, well, then we will not be condemned, but we will receive the eternal reward of heaven. So that completes our response to the Protestant argument from 1 John 5.13 in order to support the once-saved, always-saved doctrine. John chapter 5, verse 24. This is another passage that some believers in the once-saved-always-saved doctrine will appeal to, to justify their belief. And so, uh, John 5, 24 is where Jesus says, again, I'll quote it, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life.'" Now, the late Norman Geisler interprets this passage to mean, as he puts it, those who truly believe now can be certain now that they will be in heaven later. Uh, this leads him to conclude, and I think he made um, he made this argument in his contribution to the book Four Views of Eternal Security. I think that's where he made this argument. And then, so he says, you know, those who truly believe now can be certain now that they will be in heaven later. And this leads him to conclude. Eternal life is a present possession in the moment people believe, and this assures Christians they will never be condemned. And so notice Geisler here is focusing on the quote-unquote eternal life, and having that eternal life assures that the individual who comes to possess that eternal life upon belief will never be condemned. So the question becomes, well, does this passage mean what Geisler thinks it means? And I'm going to answer no. So let's take a look. The first thing that we can say is that the present possession of eternal life via belief doesn't mean a person will never be condemned. So just consider the logic of the matter. For a believer to never be condemned Jesus would have to have said that a person who currently possesses eternal life via belief always remains in possession of this life, which in turn would mean that such a person would always remain in the state of belief. But Jesus doesn't say that. And the mere affirmation of the present status of a believer possessing eternal life doesn't entail logically this either. It only proves that as long as a person believes, he has eternal life. And having such life, when we stand before Christ in judgment at the end of our lives, that's what's going to exclude us from condemnation. Moreover, 
the New Testament teaches that a believer can fall away from faith and thus lose the possession of eternal life. So we have the logic of the matter. Mere present possession of eternal life doesn't entail that one will always remain in the state of belief and thus continue to possess that eternal life. And then secondly, we actually have New Testament evidence that teaches believers can fall away from faith and thus lose that possession of eternal life. So consider Luke 8.13, our Lord's words himself in reference to someone who, quote-unquote, hears the word and, quote-unquote, receives it with joy. Jesus says this, they believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. For someone to hear the word and receive it with joy, that means they believe. That was real belief in virtue of which they would possess the eternal life. But our Lord says that those who believe for a while and in time of temptation, they fall away. They lose that belief. And so the inference would be that they would lose the eternal life that is presently possessed in virtue of the belief. And this being the case, the present possession of eternal life via belief doesn't mean the believer will never be condemned. Now, a second response is that the logic embedded in Geisler's interpretation of John 5.24 proves too much, especially when applied elsewhere. Consider a parallel with John chapter 3, verse 36, at least the second half of verse 36. So consider this. John 5.24 says, He who believes does not come into judgment. Now consider what John 3.36b says. He who does not obey the Son that is to say, he who believes not shall not see eternal life. Okay? So try to picture that in your mind there. John 5, 24. He who believes doesn't come into judgment. John 3, 36b. He who believes not shall not see eternal life. Notice how the grammar and the syntax are parallel in structure. Each stipulates a condition and a consequence when the condition is met. Now, on Geisler's interpretation of John 5.24, once the condition of the belief is met, he who believes, right, the consequence of not coming into judgment is secure. Now consider this. If we were to follow this line of reasoning when interpreting John 3.36b, we'd have to say that once the condition of not obeying the Son or not believing is met, then the consequence of not seeing eternal life is secure. That's the logic of Geisler's argument from John 5.24 applied to John 3.36b. But this would mean that anyone who currently doesn't believe can never repent of his unbelief and receive salvation. That's what Geisler's logic would lead to. But of course, this contradicts Jesus' call for repentance. Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. It also contradicts the apostolic call for repentance. In Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Neither John 3.36b nor John 5.24 is addressing the issue of whether the condition of the person involved, believer or non-believer, can change. That's not the focus. That's not the issue. Rather, as New Testament professor Robert Pesirilli points out in his book, Grace, Faith, and Free Will, the emphasis is on the fulfillment of the promise to those who persist in the respective state described. What's the respective state? The respective state is believing and thus possessing eternal life. So the emphasis is on those persisting in that state, 
And if you persist in that state, well then yes, eternal life will be yours. So since Geyser's line of reasoning cannot be applied consistently throughout Scripture without leading to conclusions that contradict New Testament teaching, we're justified in rejecting it, and consequently his interpretation of John 5.24. Bottom line, John 5.24 does not prove the doctrine of eternal security, i.e. once saved, always saved. Now, here's a third response that we could put forward in response to the appeal to John 5.24, and even just the doctrine of eternal security in general. And this is a response used by uh, my colleague and good friend at Catholic Answers, Jimmy Aiken. In his book, A Daily Defense, the Bible does he, he He states this response, this principle. The Bible doesn't only speak of eternal life as something presently possessed by believers. In other words, it also speaks of it as something believers have not yet achieved. So again, the Bible speaks of eternal life not only as something presently possessed, but also something has not yet achieved. Consider Romans 2.7. St. Paul says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So eternal life seems to be something in the future, and not only what is presently possessed. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, Paul writes, he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Well, to reap eternal life implies that you don't have it currently. So there's some aspect of eternal life that a believer does not have yet, but yet some other aspect of eternal life that a believer does have. And so consider this. If, there's not a, if there is a not yet dimension to receiving eternal life, well then you can't simply assert that believers are secure in the aspect of it that they currently possess. The not-yetness allows for the possibility to lose it. That is, if a believer stops believing, stops seeking for glory, honor, and immortality, to quote St. Paul, or stops sowing to the Spirit, etc., well then, that person will not attain the eternal life, the not-yetness of eternal life. Now, a believer uh, in the doctrine of eternal security might counter here. You're gutting the meaning of eternal in the phrase eternal life. Eternal life would not be eternal if we could lose it. Now, this counter-argument assumes that the term denotes merely a quantity of life in the sense of living forever. But I'm going to submit that this is a wrong interpretation and understanding of eternal in the phrase eternal life. And I think it's this fundamental assumption and view of eternal that's driving the argument from John chapter 5, verse 24. So I think it's important we expose that assumption and think through it and analyze it. By saying that you can lose eternal life, you're gutting the meaning of eternal in the phrase eternal life. Eternal life wouldn't be eternal if we could lose it. And that's a pretty good counter-argument to the lines of reasoning that I've been offering here so far in today's episode. Now, think about this. This counter-argument assumes that the term denote the term denotes a, merely a quantity of life in the sense of living forever. That's the fundamental assumption that's driving the objection. But this can't be what Jesus is referring to, because he says a few verses later that in, in John chapter 5, verses 25 and 29, 
those who done evil, who've done evil, will rise to the resurrection of judgment. Now, if by eternal life, Jesus meant simply that we will live forever, when he's talking about believers, right? If that's all he meant, we're just going to live forever, quantity of life, well then, it would appropriately be ascribed also to the damned, because the damned live forever too, in the sense of a quantity of duration of existence. But surely the damned don't have eternal life in the same sense that believers do. So what does the phrase eternal life refer to? Well, again, as my colleague and good friend Jimmy Aiken concludes, eternal life thus deals not just with a quantity, but a quality or kind of life. And it's the life of God that we as believers participate in, right? As St. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we become partakers of the divine nature. And once you understand eternal life in that sense, not merely in the quantity of life, but eternal life in the sense of a quality of life, a kind of life that God gives to us when we come initially to believe in him. Ordinarily, we would say as Catholics through the sacrament of baptism, when we become members of the mystical body of Christ, we receive that eternal life, which is the life of grace in the soul, in virtue of which we are put into a right relationship with God, a life that is pure grace, that is to say, pure gift. And so when we understand eternal life in that sense, then we can further understand that it's possible to lose that life of grace and it in no way take away from the meaning of eternal in eternal life. That's to say eternal life is simply the life of God, right? The life of grace, the life that God gives to us supernaturally. Okay, so that completes our response to the argument from John chapter 5, verse 24. There's one last biblical passage that believers in the doctrine of eternal security will appeal to uh, in order to support their belief, and that is Romans 8, 38 through 39. And here's what Paul writes in Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Norman Geisler Again, to refer to the late Norman Geisler, he argues this passage needs little comment, merely contemplation. And the thing that Geisler thinks we need to contemplate is the fact that there is literally nothing, he says, in all creation that can separate a believer from Christ. And for Geisler, the creature himself falls into this category, and therefore concludes that a Christian cannot lose his salvation. So you got this category of things that cannot separate a believer from Christ. Geisler thinks that the believer is included in that category. And so the question becomes, well, is Geisler's reading of Paul correct here? And I think Geisler offers this interpretation in his book, again, um, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals Agreements and Differences. So my first response, the first answer to this sort of argument is Notice how Geisler assumes that Paul is speaking of an individual salvation, even though the text is actually focused more broadly on God's love for his people. But even taking the reading that Paul is talking about individual salvation, his interpretation doesn't follow. Notice that Paul lists ten things that won't be able to separate us from Christ's love. Nine of the ten, excluding for a moment anything else in all creation, refer to something external to the believer 
that the believer has no control over. A believer can't control, for example, whether he's born or will die, right? And Paul is talking about death and life. Nor can he control when angels and what angels and demons do. Paul mentions angels and principalities. Uh, we're definitely not in control of time. Paul mentions things present, things to come. Or nor are we in control of the cosmos. Paul mentions powers, height, and depth. Just a few verses before, in verse 35, Paul gives a similar teaching and another list of items, all of which are external to and beyond the control of the believer. Take, for example, what Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or, or the sword? Now, a believer's sins are not external to and beyond his control. They're internal, inasmuch as they flow from his will, and they're not beyond his control, otherwise sin wouldn't be a free action. Since a believer's sins don't belong to Paul's group of things external to and beyond the control of a believer, a believer's sins are not excluded from things that cannot separate us from the love of Christ, verse 35, and the love of God, verse 39. Here's an analogy that might help flesh this out. Suppose a man says to his fiancée, whose family is trying to stop them from getting married, I will let no one come between us. This doesn't mean there's no possible way for you, the fiancé, to break off the relationship, right? The man is promising only that no one external to them as a couple will affect their relationship. Moreover, if Paul did mean to say, even our own sins can't cut us off from God, that's an awfully big thing for him to omit. How did he forget to include that one on the list when he remembered to include famine, right? And so the bottom line here is that our sins do not belong in this category of things that Paul is saying cannot exclude us from the love of God. A second point is that not only does the text not force Geisler's interpretation, but the broader context of the epistle to the Romans disproves it. So check out Romans 6, 12-13, for example. Paul warns the Christians in Rome, "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness." It doesn't make sense that Paul would warn Christians about letting sin reign over them if he didn't think it were possible for Christians to be re-enslaved to sin and return to their former way of life when they weren't justified. Paul gives a similar warning to the Christians in Corinth. In the beginning of chapter 6 of his first letter, he chastises in verses 1 through 8 the Corinthians for having lawsuits with fellow Christians. And then immediately following this chastisement, he writes in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The flow of Paul's reasoning there in um, chapter 6, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Paul of, uh, the reasoning, Paul's reasoning suggests that the Corinthians' unrighteous behavior is endangering their receiving the inheritance of heaven, and they therefore need to be warned. And then Paul says in verses 9 through 10, Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, that is to say those who practice homosexuality, who engage in same-sex sexual activity, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. That Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, do not be deceived, suggests that he thinks Christians could be deceived. These are born-again saved Christians, mind you that they could be deceived into thinking these sins, the ones he just listed, would not exclude them from the kingdom of God. 
Perhaps Geisler and other eternal security advocates need to heed Paul's warning here, right? Okay, so it's possible that these Christians could be deceived and thinking that these things would not impede them from the kingdom of God. And Paul's saying, no, they can impede you from the kingdom of God. And so this brings us back to Romans 8, 35 and 39, and the list of things that Paul says cannot exclude you from the kingdom of God. Well, Paul is saying here, these sins, if committed even by born-again saved Christians, will exclude them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. A third response, and perhaps stronger than what I've said already appealing to Paul's other writings, is that the Bible clearly says sin can separate us from Christ and God's love. John 15, 9 through 10 is an example where Christ says we got to abide in him, but it's possible that we can be cut off from him. Uh, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5.16 is another verse, so we know and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So regardless of which response we take here, those who want to use Romans 8.38-39 to support the doctrine of eternal security fail to achieve that goal. There are other passages that Protestants have in their repertoire, but we'll have to consider those for some other time. Well, unfortunately, my friends, we're out of time for this week's episode. The Catholic claim that the Bible does not teach the doctrine of eternal security or the once saved, always saved doctrine. Um, Hopefully you can see that that claim is solid. And we gave reasons for that claim, refuting at least some of the biblical passages that Protestants appeal to for justification of this belief. 1 John 5.13, John 5.24, and Romans 8.38-39. Thank you for listening to The Catholic Reason with yours truly, Carlo Broussard. Remember, the show is podcasted. You can find the podcast version by searching The Catholic Reason in any podcast search engine that you use, or you can go to carlobroussard.com, click The Catholic Reason under the audio tab. You can also ask, access the podcast version by subscribing to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast. I invite you to join me again next week on Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. here on 94.9 St. Michael Catholic Radio as we continue looking at Catholic claims and the reasons behind them. Be sure to tell a friend. Talk to you then.